Would you turn to Mark chapter 16? So Mark chapter 16 and verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they led him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, and for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his own inspired word. I love biographies, historical biographies, missionary biographies, biographies of pastors, and even sometimes business uh, uh, Biographies, biographies from the world of business or um, a show business even. Early on in my ministry, I took some advice of the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones when he said to young ministers, biographies at bedtime. And I have enjoyed them ever since. Now, the Gospel of Mark and indeed all the Gospels are a biography of Jesus. But unlike any other biography... They end not with the death of its subject, Jesus, but with his glorious resurrection. Now that's unique. No other biography, including the biographies of the founders of the great world's religions, have a chapter on the resurrection. There may be a little postscript, even another chapter, speaking about their lasting influence and legacy. But there is no chapter on a resurrection But in each of the four Gospels, there is this additional material detailing for us the resurrection of their subject, the Lord Jesus Christ. That the biography of Jesus ends not in the tragedy of his crucifixion, but in the triumph of his resurrection. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus is not only central to the biography of Jesus, but crucial to the theology of Jesus. Paul states dogmatically and categorically in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 14, if Christ is not raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. That the resurrection is crucial to the Christian gospel. And if Christ's body remained in the grave and returned to dust like everybody else, then our faith is without foundation and our preaching is a sheer waste of time and our gathering together this morning is is a waste of time too. John Stott says, Christianity at its very essence is a resurrection religion. The concept of resurrection lies at its very heart. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. The biography of Jesus is not the story of one who was alive and is now dead, but one who was dead and is now alive. 
And this morning I want to turn our attention to the biography as recorded uh, for us uh, uh, by Mark and the details about the resurrection. First thing I want you to notice is the evidence for the resurrection. Although the resurrection of Jesus is essentially a matter of faith, it it nevertheless stands the scrutiny of the best legal minds throughout history. An individual, a friend that I know, was studying law at university, and for his um, thesis that had to be done in person in a mock trial where his professor was the judge, uh, some of his classmates were the prosecution, and uh, the rest made up the, the jury, presented his thesis on the evidence for the resurrection. And so convincing was his arguments that his tutor himself declared that in light of the overwhelming uh, evidence, even though he was an agnostic, that uh, Christ had indeed risen. Now, of course, that didn't convert him because essentially belief in the resurrection is a matter of faith. But we need to understand that that belief in the resurrection Uh, doesn't mean that you suspend your intellectual uh, faculties or, as my brother said to me when I became a Christian, that you commit intellectual suicide. Someone uh, defined faith uh, as the illogical belief uh, in the occurrence of the improbable. Well, not so when it comes to the resurrection because the evidence for the literal historical resurrection of Jesus is overwhelming. There's the removal of the stone. We're told in verse 6, or verse 4, it was very large. The removal of that stone uh, and the, the language of the New Testament is very clear. That We know that there was an earthquake, but the language used is that the stone was rolled. So it didn't just fall, it was rolled. We have the arrangement of the uh, grave clothes, almost as if um, a body had passed through those grave clothes. I was listening to Alistair Begg during the week, and he said uh, that he thinks Christians read too much into the setting and the arrangement of the uh, grave clothes because Mary, as a good mother, taught her son how to make his bed. And when he uh, rose from the dead, he simply uh, arranged his clothes. Well, I, I think that's an oversimplification because in John's gospel, when we're told that John went into the tomb, there was something about that arrangement of the clothes that made him believe, that convinced him that Christ had indeed risen, that it, it was almost as if he had passed through uh, the, the, the material. That's interesting uh, too, isn't it? Why do you think the stone was rolled away? Because if Jesus passed through the clothes and we know that he could pass through doors, why didn't he just pass through the stone? Because the stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let us in, to let the witnesses in to see the evidence that was there. So uh, there's the removal of the stone. There's the arrangement of the uh, grave clothes. There's the many eyewitness accounts of seeing the Lord Jesus. Over 500 people at one time 
saw him together. It wasn't a a, a hallucination which might happen to an individual. This was convincing proof, 500 people at one time. And then there's the radical transformation in the disciples from carring away, hidden away for fear of the Jews, uh, then going out boldly and beginning at Jerusalem, the very epicenter of Jewish opposition, uh, to preach the, the good news. But one of the things that uh, my friend presented uh, to his faculty uh, for the evidence of the resurrection was the authentic reporting of the resurrection, particularly in the Gospel of Mark. And that's what I want you to pick up this morning. Uh, How Mark authentically, without any kind of gloss or cover-up, reports the details of the resurrection. Notice, first of all, from verse 1, that it was three women. We know there were more women because Joanna Joanna was there as well, according to Luke's gospel. But it was they who discovered the empty tomb. Now, that's significant because women weren't considered to be reliable witnesses in the ancient world. Too emotional. I'm not sure if that's true or not. But anyway, that's, that's what was said. So they weren't admitted Uh, to give evidence in a court of law. But when Mark comes to write his gospel, it is the women who witness the resurrection, come to the tomb and ultimately witness the resurrection. If the early church, as some suggest, wanted to fabricate and concoct this story of the resurrection, there's no way that they would have used women as eyewitnesses uh, to report Uh, this news. Secondly, it's clear from the account that the women weren't expecting a resurrection. As they went to the tomb, they discussed how they would gain entry to the tomb. They'd come to uh, anoint the body, which, remember, um, the the body already had spices. Uh, Joseph Joseph and Nicodemus had covered the the body in spices, but it was a, a, a mark of respect to come and anoint the body. But they come and they are greeted with these words, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. They are astonished, verse 8, by this strange announcement. Announcement That breathes authenticity. Presumably these women were still alive and, and uh, wouldn't have been happy uh, uh, about being painted in such dark uh, colors as far as their unbelief is concerned and their response to the resurrection is concerned. And then the third mark of authenticity is seen in the closing words of the gospel. Verse 8 is where the gospel originally ends, as you can see if you're using a, a more modern version, the NIV or the S. ESV. Verses 9 to 20 were added at a later stage. Now, I hope I don't shock anybody in saying that, but, but there's lots and lots of textual and historical evidence for that, that, that verses 9 to 20 are an addition. So in the early church, you have men who are preaching and commenting on uh, uh, Mark's gospel, like Clement of Alexandria in the first century, Oregon, uh, 
Eusebius in the 4th century, and they know nothing of the ending of Mark's, uh, the later uh, addition to Mark's gospel. William Henrikson, one of the most conservative scholars uh, and commentators that we have, highlights the textual evidence that the best and most reliable uh, manuscripts do not have, verses 9 to 20. There's a, a, a difference in diction. There's a difference uh, in vocabulary. In verses 1 to 8, Mark only uses four words that aren't recorded in the rest of the gospel. In verses 9 to 20, there are 14 words. There's a difference in style. Alex has highlighted for us the, the racy, the pacey nature of Mark's gospel, sentences beginning with the word and, 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 this happened. The contents and details of it, baptismal regeneration, serpent, serpent handling, poison drinking, all of those things were added at a later date. So what I'm saying to you is that the original gospel ended in verse 8. Now notice that ending, verse 8, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. My Cicero, a hundred years before the birth of Jesus, was, a, was the father of, of modern law. And, and he came up with cu bono, that, that's the Latin phrase, who benefits? So that the, 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 the legal mind has to ask, well, why did they write this? Or why did they say this? Or why did the, they do this? And for what benefit? And there's no benefit. If the disciples had concocted this story, there is no possible benefit to the cause of Christianity at all trembling and bewildered and afraid. And so the whole narrative of Mark's gospel, the ending of Mark's gospel, breathes authenticity. authenticity. And that's uh, one of the evidences that this friend of mine presented to his faculty when he was studying law as for evidence for the resurrection. The second thing I want you to notice is the power of the resurrection. Jesus had been in the tomb throughout the Sabbath in the heat of the Mediterranean sun. And of course, there was this, this danger that the body would rapidly decompose. And so the women come to anoint the body to take away the stench. And the power of God then, you think of this, from Friday night all day Saturday uh, into the Sunday morning, this, this body had been lying in the tomb. Um, I'm a great fan of, of listening to uh, fiction, uh, to uh, detective-type fiction. And, and one of the things that the post-mortem examination will will look for is the presence of, of insects, of bugs in the body to determine the time of death. And with, within an hour, those little microbes can be seen and manifested and, and start to, to bring on 
rigor mortis and decomposition. But, but here, certainly, and dramatically, the, the power of God is unleashed. And brain waves begin to function. Eyes begin to flicker. Heart begins to beat. Blood begins to circulate. It's, it's a remarkable demonstration of the power of God. Now, who, who raised Christ from the dead? We asked this question at our elders' meeting uh, during the week. Who raised Christ? And uh, the obvious answer is from Acts chapter 2 that God raised him on the third day. Uh, Romans 1 tells us that, that he was raised by the glory of the Father. The Father raised him. But as Alex alluded to in his prayer, we're told that Jesus himself said, I have the power to lay down my life and take it up again. That he said, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. So that you have all of the persons of the Godhead operating in this lifeless corpse of Jesus. Because remember, Jesus wasn't in the tomb. As he said to the dying thief, he was absent from the body and present with the Lord. So he was with the Lord and you had Father, Son through the energy and power of the Spirit raising Christ's body to life again. What a marvelous demonstration of the power of God. Quote J.I. Packer, the victim of Calvary is now at loose and at large. The power of God. And this is what I, I want you to see and I want you to get that that same power, that resurrection power that was in Christ, raising him from this state of death and decomposition to life and vitality is the same power that works in us. Turn over with me just to Ephesians chapter 1, to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul's great prayer in verse 15. Ephesians chapter 1 and, and verse 15. Here's Paul and he's praying for the Ephesians. And he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Well, we might expect that, that they might have a spirit of wisdom and revelation that they might know him better. And then he says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurably greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Now do you see this? Paul is, is praying not for something new, but he's praying that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened, that they might know the hope of his calling, that, that he has called us to faith in himself, and that hope, that calling, results in hope that we have this great hope of forever being with the Lord, the incomparable riches of his grace, that uh, 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 
and the inheritance that he has laid up for us in glory and the incomparably great power for us to believe. And now he's not praying for a, a new experience of power. He's praying that our eyes might be opened, that we might know the power that we have already received in Christ. And he says that power is the power that raised Christ from the dead. That the, the power that was operating when Jesus' body was brought back to life, where the process of decomposition was being reversed, that process, that power, is the power that is in the life of every believer. And he's praying that our eyes might be opened, that we might see and understand and know that power. Not a second blessing, but that we might understand what we've received in the first blessing. You think then of, of the disciples hidden away for uh, fear of the Jews. Look at how verse 8 they, about the women, for they were afraid and suddenly and dramatically and, and forcefully they're declaring in, Jer uh, in Jerusalem this, this great message of, of the resurrection. Well, what changed them? It, what changed them was the resurrection power. And you know how it is then that you know, we find ourselves in that situation where we have an opportunity to speak of Christ and a, a kind of fear grips us and paralyzes us and we don't identify ourselves um, as Christians and we let that opportunity slip. And why do we let it slip? Because just like these women, just like the disciples, we're afraid. But we don't realize that we have the power of God dwelling within us. Do you remember what Jesus promised his disciples? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He said, I will send another comforter. I, when we think of that word comforter, we think of um, like a, a petty bear, you know, that's going to, or, or a, um, a, a blankie that, you know, you, you cuddle and you tickle your nose with as a as a baby. That's, that's how we view the Holy Spirit. But that word comforter originally in English meant somebody coming alongside to strengthen, to energize, to put steel into our backs and, and courage into our hearts. That's, that's the power that we have as believers, that this resurrection power that brought Christ back from the dead is the power that every believer experiences and knows and has. And sometimes as Spurgeon says, you need to let the lion out. You need to unleash that power. So there's power in the resurrection. What a, what a comfort that is. Uh, Stephen uh, on Friday night based our service on Ephesians chapter 2 and he talked about uh, the non-Christian being dead in their trespasses and sins and that's true. The non-Christian is a spiritual corpse. They have no life whatsoever within them but when God through the power of his spirit uh, infuses spiritual energy into that dead corpse, life comes. And that individual is, is made alive onto Christ Jesus. 
There's power to persevere and to continue. Sometimes circumstances are so overwhelming. You say to yourself, I'm, I'm never going to keep this. I can't do this. I can't survive. But Paul in Colossians tells us that there is, is power to enable us to persevere and to continue, that we might be strengthened with all power. Colossians 1 verse 11, for his glorious might uh, uh, enabling us to endure power. What a glorious message then the resurrection is. It's authority. It's authenticity. It's the evidence for it. It's the power in it. And then the grace in it. I just want you to notice verse 7. You know, this is the kind of thing that you can skip over very easily. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going to Galilee. Did you notice that? Go and tell the disciples and Peter. Now, from Alex's introduction to the Gospel of Mark, who was the author of Mark's Gospel? Please don't say Mark. Who was the author of Mark's Gospel? Peter. Okay, Mark wrote it down, but the source of Mark's gospel is the apostle Peter. Now, you think of Mark and, and Peter, and they're together, they're compiling this gospel, and he's re reporting this resurrection story. Go and tell the disciples and Peter that at that point, Peter didn't even consider himself to be a disciple. He had failed and failed miserably and he wasn't worthy to be a disciple. But the Lord singles Peter out and says, go and tell the disciples and Peter, and Peter, that there was a special message in the resurrection uh, for, for, for Peter. I find that very encouraging because failure is not final. That our God is a, a God of great grace. Here, here was a man who denied the Lord three times. Three times. And the last time he denied him with oaths and curses. He took an oath in the name of his God that he didn't know this man. That he call down curses from heaven on his own head if he was found to be lying. And just at that moment, just at that moment, Jesus comes out of the, where he was being tried and walks across the courtyard and we're told he looked at Peter. He looked at Peter. There's Peter vehemently denying the Lord and at that very moment, the Lord comes out and he looks at Peter. And Peter, we're told, went out and wept bitterly. What a look that was. A look of disappointment. A look of, how could you, Peter? A look of, I told you so. Do you remember Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane? He drew his sword, he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. Ah, oh, he was so bold and brave. But there before a little servant girl, before somebody else, he denied the Lord, not once, not twice, three times. Go and tell the disciples and Peter, I'm not a disciple. 
I've gone too far. I've sunk too low. I'm not worthy to be counted a disciple. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. Because our God is a God of grace. In the 1950s, there was a a conference held on uh, comparative religions at Cambridge University. And uh, during one of the breaks from all the discussions that they, they had, they were in the common room, all these leading thinkers from all over the world. And they were discussing what was unique and distinctive about Christianity. And somebody suggested the incarnation, but other religions do have a doctrine of some kind of doctrine, at least of an incarnation. And somebody said atonement, and somebody else said the moral teaching. And C.S. Lewis, who wasn't an attendant at the conference, just happened to walk into the common room to get a cup of coffee. And they said to him, Dr. Lewis, what's, what's unique about Christianity? You're, you're a Christian. What's unique about Christianity? He says, oh, that's easy. One word, grace. One word, grace. Every other religion in the world is a must-do religion. You must do, you must do, you must do. You must do something in order to make your acceptable, self-acceptable to God. But, but Christianity is he has done. It's a religion of grace. You remember what, how we define grace? God in his justice gives us what we do deserve. God in his mercy doesn't give us what we do deserve. God in his grace gives us what we don't deserve. I'm not sure if I told this uh, illustration before, but um, there were two sort of great churches in London in the uh, 1800s. One was uh, New City Temple that was pastored by T.H. Parker and the other was Metropolitan Tabernacle that was uh, pastored by Spurgeon. And Spurgeon had lots of other ministries including uh, two orphanages. And uh, it came to Spurgeon's attention that T.H. Parker had said something publicly about the orphanages that Spurgeon only took good children into the orphanage. And Spurgeon was ripping. And that next Sunday, he stood in his pulpit and he lambasted Parker for even suggesting such a thing. And so these two preachers were so so popular that the next Sunday, um, everybody crowded into Parker's church, City Temple, to hear what Parker was going to say and how he would reply and how he would respond because he was known as an outspoken man. And uh, he got up and he said, I think this morning we're going to have a collection for Spurgeon's orphanages. And the whole collection of that service then went to the orphanages. Now, mercy was not saying anything. But grace is, is giving the money. And, and salvation is by grace, and restoration is by grace. And, and the resurrection was the great confirmation of what Christ did upon the cross in order to take away guilt, to wash away guilt. He died upon the cross. And the resurrection then was, was God's great validation of that work of atonement and 
that, that justifiably enabled him to uh, extend grace to, to everyone. Now, we had a wedding uh, on Thursday, and um, it was a lovely day. So we had uh, Sam and Nicole's wedding, and I normally would wash the car before a wedding because uh, just to try and show some respect, but it was a bit of a damp day, and I thought to myself, I really haven't time to wash the car, but I'll go out and give it a run round with the duster. And uh, I, I went out and gave it a, a little clean with one, one of Gail's dusters. So, now the principle here is very simple. To make something clean, something has to become dirty. To make something clean, something has to become dirty. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He took our guilt, our shame, our filth on the cross. He died in our place to take away that guilt, that shame, that sin. That in order, uh, in order that we might be reconciled to God. And that is grace. Yeah, Peter failed. And he failed miserably. But that's the very reason Jesus died. To take away guilt. Now, I don't know who I'm talking to this morning. I'm, I'm maybe talking to some Christians, professing Christians, and you have gone too far. And you have failed too badly. And you're saying to yourself, I'm, I'm not even a disciple. I, it's the disciples and Peter. Not, not me. I strayed too far. There's no way that God's ever going to forgive me and take me back. I want to say to you this morning, in the resurrection, we see that he is the God of all grace. If you come to him and if you ask him, for that cleansing, if you ask him, if you confess your sin, you know that he is faithful and just and will forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So come to him and experience the fresh forgiveness of God over this Easter period. And I'm, I'm maybe talking to some people who aren't Christians. And, and sometimes your conscience is pricked. And sometimes your heart feels the weight of the sins that you've committed as you look down a lifetime of rebellion against God. You know you've offended him and you know you've grieved him and, and you know you've, you've sinned against him. You don't need to be told that you're a sinner. The Bible doesn't have to inform you that you're a sinner. You know that you're a sinner. But that's the very reason Jesus died. He died to take away that sin that you might be clean and fresh and have a new beginning with God and, and that you find acceptance in Him and new life in Him, a new life in Him that will never, ever, ever be taken away. Do you see something of the, the grace of God? Go and tell the disciples and Peter, and Peter, 
And Peter then, as we know, was restored not only to the Lord, but to a position of usefulness again. So you see the evidence of the resurrection. There we have the authentic reporting of, of Mark. That, that just wouldn't have been uh, recorded in the way that it was if it was a, a product of the imaginations of the early disciples. They would have written the story better than it's recorded for us in, in the gospel. We see the power of the resurrection, that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that is unleashed in the heart of every believer. I could never keep it. Yes, you can, because he keeps you. You're, as Peter says, you're shielded by God's power. And then the grace and the resurrection, wonderful grace that we see go and tell the disciples and Peter. Amen.